0: Hello, greetings from Soho. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Now listen, if you dig the Bureau of Lost Culture, if you dig the stories we tell, the tales we unearth, why don't you leave us a review wherever you listen to this? Or you can even email us, bureauoflostculture@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Now, many young people have made that journey to London, like kind of Dick Whittington's of both genders, seeking fame, fortune, or fun. And my guest today is one of them, the delightful Diana Crawshaw. She came down to this city from Ilkley in Yorkshire in the cold, cold winter of 1963, when we all thought the world would freeze, according to Nick Laird And with her friends, she landed in Carnaby Street and started to enter the world of swinging 60s. Working in sambo fashions on the Dolly Rocker range, going off to Saint-Tropez, stargazing, trying to find herself hitchhiking to Nepal. And then on her return, working in two of the most influential groovy boutiques of the time. First of all, Lord Kitchener's Valley on the King's Road in Chelsea. And then the amazing Mr. Freedom where the great and the good and the glitterati of those years came to shop and be dressed. Hockney, Picasso, Rock Hudson, The Beatles, Freddie Mercury amongst them. We hear about fixing Raquel Welsh's hot pants, making innovative designs using boxing boot laces, basketball gear and applique. We hear about making Dennis Hopper cry. We hear about the boutique Paradise Garage at 430 Kings Road. Still occupied by Vivian Westwood, and us, and we get a wonderful insight into designing, making, and selling cool clothes in the late sixties and seventies before Diana morphed into what she still is—a palm reader. We hear about reading palms at Richard Branson's Virgin headquarters and meeting the man himself coming out of the loo. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the Bureau of Arts Culture. Welcome, Diana.
1: Hello. How
0: are you? Good. You know, I'm sitting here in Soho, uh, you know, on this wintry day, and I'm imagining that we're in a time machine and we're winding back through the years, through the decades. Let's pretend it's 1963. And you said, I came to London in the winter of 63, the big freeze, after being at Leeds College of Art, studying art and fashion. I couldn't wait to get away from the narrow suburban life of Ilkley, where everybody knew you. The Beatles had just hit, and the fashions were exciting and new. Mary Quant and a miniskirt taken the world by storm. I wanted to disappear into this world of music and pop stars. Irreverent humour and satire. Tell us a bit more about it. You were born in the north, uh, Ilkley, for anybody who doesn't know, is in York. A small town in the north of England. And so was that pull of London um, always, you know, there for you through your teens, uh,
1: Yes, I, you know, I, I really wanted to get down to London and Chelsea because I'd read about it and it just, it, it just attracted me. And Ilkley is a very small town and I went to Leeds College of Art and studied fashion there and all that. But it's, it's a kind of narrow upbringing because everybody knows you. There's no sort of uh, freedom, really. Yeah. And I wanted to be almost anonymous. I wanted to disappear, I suppose.
0: Can you remember actually sort of arriving in London at that time? It was a very exciting time, I suppose, wasn't it? I mean, the big freeze yeah. for anybody who doesn't know is that this winter, this 63 winter was uh, in the middle of the Cold War, appropriately enough. It was uh, this super cold winter and also the time, I think, remember right about the same time as the whole Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedys and all that, wasn't it? It
1: was a, it was a, a turning point, I suppose, in many ways i was attracted to london i was well my boyfriend had actually gone there to begin with he was a photographer called clive mclean and he became very famous for doing nude photography playboy and all that sort of when i knew him he wasn't doing that sort of thing but he had studied photography and art at bradford college of art and uh, he came down and um got some little tiny room to to lodge in and um he went off for a week somewhere, and he hadn't paid his rent. So his landlady chucked his camera out <laughs> and all his, his folio of all his work into a dustbin. Ouch. Uh, so he was absolutely without anything to show. And so he started to do other things, and he started to get work. He went, worked in Carnaby Street, in a cafe in Carnaby Street, first of all. And then he met up with Robert Allback, who used to go into the cafe. Robert Allback is quite famous now because he used to run lots of shops in Carnaby Street. And he's been a friend of mine for years. Mm. And and Robert said, I'll give you a job in the shop, in one of the shops, selling trousers, selling jeans and and, uh, jackets and things like that. So he was there already. He'd arrived in London already. When I came to London, I hadn't got a job or anything And um, I walked into a place in Hanover Square which was called Sambo Fashions, which wouldn't be allowed these days. Um, Sambo Fashions was a very well-established company and they did beautiful clothes and it was all very well made. And um, they brought me into the showroom and looked at my drawings and said, oh, right, can you cut patterns? I wasn't very good at cu- cutting patterns actually. And um, I said, well, yes, yes. And uh, they said, well, we like your drawings, we like these. And so they took me on and they had just started a new range called Dolly Rocker.
0: Tell us about it.
1: It was a new range for young people, inverted commerce, And they were about uh, five pounds or six pounds a dress. And they just had very little uh, little collars, little little uh, bow on the at the neck, or a little a little rose. And girls were wearing those to go to the clubs in. It was like a a little dress you could dance in. And Patty Boyd happened to be their face.
0: So Patty Boyd was a model who went on later to be um, married to yeah. George Harrison George and Eric George Harrison's
1: <laughs> lady. Yeah. And um, She was just cheeky looking. She had little little, uh, bunches, hair in bunches and a fringe and uh, big wide eyes. And she was the face of Dolly Rocker. And that was really uh, quite strange, really, because she rocketed Dolly Rocker into the public eye much more because she just started going out with George Harrison. So she was seen, in lots of the press were following her, and uh, so it was very good for the people that I worked for to have her as the face of Dolly Rockers.
0: This was the time when all that stuff was mixing up together. I mean, you'd said, you know, that Carnaby Street was a place where, you know, film stars and pop stars, you know, went to get dressed... You know yeah. were chased down the street by streaming girls, so you got the beatles that come to London and uh, uh, you know hanging out. so you got counterculture and over-the-counter culture as it were.
1: Carnaby and... street was was really dressing all these these pop stars. you know were the, these flared hipster trousers, um, really well cut because they had good tailors down in Carnaby Street. Um, so a lot of the pop stars and film stars were getting their clothes there.
0: Before we go back to your sort of design life, where were you living?
1: I got a, f- a flat in South Kensington. Um, I shared it with a girl that had come from Ilkley as well. And it was um, eight guineas a week, eight pounds, eight shillings a week.
0: That's changed a bit. Uh,
1: or seven pounds, seven shillings a week. And it was a one room. And it was a conservatory that had been converted into. A flat where people could live so it was glass everywhere outside was glass and all the landlady had done was wallpaper over the glass <laughs> so that freezing winter i was in that flat <laughs> wrapped up in fur coats and i couldn't understand why it was so cold you know it was just glass walls and christmas came and we sort of sellotaped christmas cards onto these walls and they, they curled in funnels, as they do when they get damp Christmas cards. So there were these funnels of Christmas cards.
0: <laughs> I'm guessing, though, that actually, I mean, you, you know, you said you come from the north. You landed this job, at, you know, right in the heart of uh, sort of hipster London, as it was then. And it must have been a very exciting time, right?
1: I, I was in, I'm always interested in people. And you saw people going past the main door of where I was working, you know you'd see Sean Connery or somebody walking past. I've never seen all these faces, but uh, Vogue was across the square. Vogue House was across the square. And so you've got people um, like Jean Shrimpton um, coming past. So you are sort of sort of oh people watching. And it was interesting for me to see uh, like, oh, that's the writer, that's so so that you know, the great writer or that. Um, uh, Sean Connery's uh, girlfriend or whatever uh, really loving to see all the people that I'd only read about hmm. suddenly in reality and uh, the boss gave me some money a sort of uh, expense account and said you've got to go and uh, watch people and so he gave me money to go to clubs so I went with with Clyde the boyfriend and we went to various clubs and saw what people were wearing and, and picked up the new dances and everything.
0: So that was your kind of research, uh, really, for the designs yes. that you were doing at the time. You, you you said also that this the place that you worked at, I mean, you'd mentioned that Carnaby Street, which is just around the corner from where I am now, you know, it had this history of tailoring. So good quality yes. stuff was being made. And you said that, you know, the, the place that you worked, OK, um, you know, Patty Boy was the face of it, but sort of back back of house... It was machinists working really hard, yes. you know, with very regulated hours and tea breaks oh, yes. and stuff. And, and, um, and uh,
1: the machinists were all sort of, you know, oh, yeah, well, my bad leg. And they were talking about, you know, what they were going to have for tea and, um, and gossiping all the time. <laughs> and there was this dreadful Jimmy Young blaring across from the radio.
0: Horrible easy listening radio. And you were saying that you, you, you were quite stifled, but this is the interesting thing because you mentioned the boss now who seems quite enlightened if he was going to give you an expense account uh, to go yes. to the clubs with your boyfriend but he took you under his wing didn't he and, um, and, you know, and, and then started to take you off to all sorts of exotic places. He sent right?
1: me. He, he, he and his wife sort of saw something in me because I was always very honest. I, was, I didn't sort of try to um, say what say what they wanted me to say I, I, and I had this slight Yorkshire accent and uh, it sort of amused them and uh, his wife said now come on my dear you know, I'm going to send you to my hairdresser Renee and get this long hair cut and so she had it cut in, a, in the fashionable bob, you know the short bouncy hair and, um, and Sam bought me a wonderful black double breasted PVC jacket and I wore with these high boots. I started to really, well, you know, I started to get to look a bit more like the people I was watching. <laughs> and then he sent me to Saint Tropez.
0: I love, I love this guy. I mean, he's the sort of boss you want, right?
1: He was wonderful because he said, he'd, "He'd say, come and talk to your old dad." I was. He was like a dad to me, um, and. He'd just say, "Now come on," and he had a bit of a stammer. And he said, "I, I, I want you to do this." And I, I know, I know that you want to do really much more exciting designs. But these, what, what we, what we want now is, we want some very commercial ideas for Miss, for the Selfridges and the and the John Lewis's and all the big stores that they sold to. They sold Dolly Rockers in the thousands, so they didn't really want uh, uh, too much of a rebel in their midst. Saying, listen, I want this to be like I want to, this. It's got to be shorter. This has got to be. They they were trying to get me to design things that their buyers would would buy.
0: Right, so mainstream kind of you know commercial stuff for for kind of cool, hip young people, but nothing too uh, nothing too exotic or nothing too daring.
1: That's right, and and then they sent me to Saint-Tropez which I'm not sure whether that was a good idea, <laughs> because I got out there, I got on this plane, I'd never been to the south of France before in my life. Um, I, I unwittingly booked into the only gay hotel in Saint-Tropez, um, and the, the guys there looked after me like, like their little sister and took me out on the port in the, in the evening. I don't know whether it was to sort of be like a decoy to attract a few boys as well, but they'd take me out on the port and watch this parade of famous people who gathered in Saint-Tropez each evening on the quay, That like you'd see Picasso, or you'd see uh, Kirk Douglas, or Bob Mitchum. i think, that's Bob Mitchum. It, oh yes, he comes many times. Like, it was just sort of casual. Nobody was screaming and running after these stars because these stars were just the normal thing to see. They'd come down from Nice, or just coming round to Saint Tropez, or they'd come round to pick up a boyfriend or a girlfriend as well. Because it was a bit like a, a. Fas- it was a bit like a parade.
0: I mean, you're getting paid to be there, so part of it was for you to sort of, you know, research, take it all, drink it all in. Yeah. Uh, to sort of understand what the latest fashionable moves were and what, you know, the glitterati were wearing so that that could be sort of reinterpreted and retranslated into stuff when you get got back to, to London. Is that right?
1: That's right. Well, they didn't give me very much money to exist on while I was there. And, um, but, you know, they said, well, you know, stay for another week because I was, I was loving it so much. So I... I ended up um, keeping lettuces in my washbowl. I'd sort of go to the market and uh, buy a lettuce and buy some tomatoes and various things and then just keep them in the cold water in the washbowl in the, in the hotel room. And then I met this boy who was a millionaire's son who was uh, working in one of the shops on the end of the port. He was actually, his, his parents were titled, I think, and uh, they had real... Uh, impressionist paintings inside their flat. And, um, and he sort of roared me around on the back of his, of his scooter, backwards and forwards, up and down. And um, he didn't actually help me out financially or anything like that, but he took me to clubs that I wouldn't have been able to afford to get into. We went up to this club, Biblos, the club on the top of the hill, uh, very luxurious and there were people from Tamla Motown performing up there, which was, you know, I loved Tamla Motown. So it was like I'd just gone to heaven. <laughs> there was I in the middle of, in saint Bay, listening to Tamla Motown um, stars singing live and dancing. And, and then he'd take me home on the back of his scooter.
0: It's a long way from Ilkley.
1: Yeah, yes. It was. I was just lucky because I was thrown in at the deep end. I had no money and, uh, and I was kind of truthful. I was, I'd say what I thought or I'd things like that that weren't really accepted in Saint-Tropez society. You're very funny because you say what you think.
0: Well, what happened when you got back to London?
1: Well, you know, I loved it. I loved um, going back to London, and I really wanted to do something a bit more exciting. I moved into a flat with three other boys at number eight, Ladbroke Grove, and two of them were at art college with me, and another one was an ex-public school boy and very intelligent and everything, and he started to sort of talk to me, and he said, you know, you need to find yourself... You know, Daddy you know, what, what are you talking about? You're, you're just talking platitudes. He persuaded me to leave the job and hitchhike to the with him. so I had to go and tell the news to Sam Sherman, say I, you know, I want to um i want I want to leave." And he said, "What what what?" I said well, you know, I need to go and find myself." And he said, "What do you mean, dear find yourself? you know?" Uh, well, haven't I mean, you found yourself already, dear? I say, well, uh, I, you know, I've i got to see the world and, and uh, see the meaning of life and all that. So, well, you know the meaning of life, dear, you know. It's, it's here in front of us. <laughs> <laughs> You're so lovely. So he said, listen, I can't persuade you because he couldn't, he kept trying to, he said, listen, I'll ask you one more time. you are got to stay. Do you need some more money? Do you need me to give you a raise? No, I, I just need to go. I said all right um go but when you come back which you will uh, come and see your old dad and uh and i'll give you some sort of help
0: what a sweetie i mean i'm, I'm loving this guy um oh, he's, he's, he sounds amazing
1: i got as far as roads a hitchhike right. through italy uh, very dangerous hitching through italy in tight hipster pants and a and a skinny-ribbed jumper with no bra. I'm not trying it. You know, lorries would... The boyfriend would hide behind a rock.
0: (laughs) Classic hitchhiking technique.
1: The big lorry would screech to a halt. Ah, ciao! And I'd come towards the truck, and then the boyfriend, the bearded boyfriend, would come from behind the rock, and the lorry driver would go, ah, mummy, mia, (laughs) hit his forehead with his fist, you know. Ah, uh, right. as long as I would sit next to the driver that was okay. Mm. So I had to sit next to the gear stick which he kept changing the gear <laughs> with my
0: <You> know, leg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I'm just thinking when you're talking then about going off and finding yourself, um a classic mid 60s thing. I mean I was thinking of that film The Graduate as well, you know, when um, Yeah. Yeah. When when uh, when, they, when they take off, you know, to kind of cross America. And um very much of the time I suppose, you know, that the countercultural time, isn't it, the the, the notion that you would as a young person, that you would go off to some eastern place and uh, yeah. bathe, bathe in exotic wisdom and be transformed before you came back, right?
1: Yes, <laughs> that was the time, but um, because it hadn't worked out, this trying to go and find yourself, and uh, the boyfriend had fallen ill. By the time we got to Rhodes, I was practically carrying him. He got so ill, and we came back up through Italy. And the boyfriend was sitting next to the driver and there was nowhere for me to be. So I actually had to lie on the truck at the back of this flatbed truck as it was going up the uh, Autostrada, is it called, the Italian one? Um, On this flatbed truck going at uh, 80 miles an hour up the main motorway going up towards northern Italy covered in a rug, I thought, what am I doing? I mean, I could easily have been killed. Mm. I could have easily fallen off. It was just complete madness. So I came back, came back to sanity. And so Sam said, listen, you're going to need some money while you decide what to do. Your job's here for you, but I know that you've had a bit of a change of heart about everything. And so, you know, I told you to come and see me. I will give you so much a week, come and see me and I'll give you some money so that you can keep yourself, so that you can pay the rent and things like that.
0: This guy sounds like some sort of angel.
1: He was. And he wasn't like a lot of these rag trade bosses who were Mm. after getting you into bed and all that stuff. He was was just like a good father (laughs) to me. And so I didn't go back and work for him because I got offered a very, very good job with lots of money with another company. And so I started to do that. The person who offered me lots of money to work for them was actually a little bit free with their hands, and uh, I realised that there was more to it than just working and, and designing dresses for him. So I left, and I was, what shall I do now? And Robert Allback who had been a good friend of Clive McLean, my old boyfriend, and who'd worked in Carnaby Street, uh, met me and said, listen, we need somebody for, this, for our new shop in the King's Road. I was Lord Kitchener's valet. We need some staff. So come on, you, you can do it. And we'll give you this much money a week. And so that started me working on the King's Road at last because this was really where I thought everything happened. And it did.
0: So you gone from the sort of one of the uh, centres of swinging London in Soho and Carnaby Street straight to the other one, uh, Ch- Chelsea and the Kings Road, right?
1: Yeah, where I was walking around in, in sort of Kings Road clothes and, and uh, it was exciting. We had all the latest uh, music being played in the shop because Harlequin Records down the road, the guy used to bring us in the new releases whenever they came out. So we had every, all the latest Beach Boys sounds and all the animals and, and all those different sounds. And, uh, and the cars outside were banging into each other because of models and beautiful people and film stars parading down, down uh, along the pavement every Saturday afternoon. So every now and again you heard this loud bang. Where a car just banged into the one in front because the guy was rubbernecking, looking <laughs> at a big girl in a miniskirt. skirt. You know, and we'd all come out of the shop and, and applaud. Hooray!
0: <laughs> right. um, and um, for anybody who doesn't know, I, mean, uh, I was Lord Kitchener's Valet. It was this boutique that it became famous because it was the first one to really um, you know, promote these, what had been sort of antique. Military uniforms, sort yes. of re- repurposed, as it were, as they say these days. Naval
1: greatcoats.
0: Naval greatcoats yeah. and the kind of and, and that sort of uh, you know Boer War style kind of red, with lots lots of uh, um, uh, uh, decorations. Right, and they repurposed those, and they became part of that kind of psychedelic wardrobe. Well, didn't they? because
1: of- Beatles were were wearing that sort of thing. You know, look on the old Beatles albums, and they're in Sergeant Pepper. Mm. Um, they're wearing they're wearing those uniforms. Those military uniforms, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts, Lonely Hearts Club bang. It had become the sort of thing that a lot of people were wearing. Mm. People who had no affinity with the military at all, hippies who were, you know, love and peace and, and uh, give a flower to somebody and ban the bomb, were all wearing military uniforms. <laughs>
0: Which was one, <laughs> one of the things which started to wind up, I think, didn't it, the older generation at the time, is this kind of reappropriation of this military yeah. wear by, yeah. the, by the flower power kids, right?
1: Yeah, and it was cheap, you see, because you could go up to Lawrence Corner, which sold all the ex-military uh, uniforms very cheaply. They had warehouses full of ex-military stuff. Uh, so you could buy something quite cheaply. You could buy the the front buttoning um, sailor trousers and these jackets for for not a huge amount of money. and then the the boys, the guys got hold of these sailor trousers and dyed them in all different colors. They were cotton, but uh, and so you'd have pale blue ones, and you'd have bright pink ones. but they were they were uh commissioning the military of the past, the military uniform of the past uh, for the dope-smoking hippies.
0: Right. Well, and so, but at this time, you were really just kind of working in the shop. You weren't doing design so much, but the next thing that you do um, is really where you kind of came into your own, isn't it?
1: I was working in that shop for a while, and then Robert, again, um, said, Listen... That you need we, you, we need you down at Mr. Freedom. There's a shop down the road that's called Mr. Freedom. It's just opened, and uh, their designer has gone AWOL. And so I said, look, Robert, I don't want to do any... Yeah, he'd always bring me all sorts of propositions for different jobs. I said, Robert, I don't want to work at that place. And, and he said, no, please, please, believe me, this is a really good place. It's really good. It's going to be a great opportunity for you. I've told them all about you, and you've got to come, and you're coming now. And we got in a taxi and went down to the King's Road. And that was Mr. Freedom. And it was a beautiful little shop. It's where it's where Vivian Westwood's shop is now. It's a tiny it's a corner. It's a shop on a corner. And um, so I went down there. And Robert just said, you know, I've brought Diana. She's going to design for you. She can design. She's designed... A long time she did Dolly Rockers, and she knows what to do, and she cut a pan. And um, <laughs> so I was handed over to them. Mr. Freedom, being the newest, most exciting shop, where it, it attracted people from all over the world, uh, it attracted again those film stars and people that had been walking up and down the King's Road. The, and the Beatles and everybody ended up in mis, in Mister Freedom.
0: Tommy Roberts, the um, uh, the guy there. I mean, he he had quite a sort of history already, wasn't he? And he was he was quite pivotal, wasn't he, in that whole countercultural, swinging London scene.
1: He was um, somebody who could draw people to him. He was somebody who was sort of charismatic. He was the little fat guy who, yeah, come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be that'd be nice, yeah, yeah. Oh. That's a good idea. You know, he didn't actually design things, but he drew people around him who could. And so people were brought in who could do applique work, you know, satin applique, Mickey Mouses on tops of T-shirts. That grew from being a little shop and attracting an enormous amount of people into being a big shop in Church Street, Kensington.
0: You had had the sort of great and good, hadn't you? Hockney, Peter Blake, Picasso, the Beatles, Rock Hudson. And of course, you, yes. had, this, you had this sort of strange interaction with um, Raquel Welsh. Tell us about that.
1: Yes. I was. I went down into the shop. Somebody said, um, can you go down? Um, there's somebody who wants to speak to you. And there was Racco Welsh with this enormous bodyguard. And she'd she'd uh, got her eye on this little pair of velveteen hot pants, which Mr. Freedom specialized in hot pants. Um, But she said they're a little bit too short, a little bit too revealing, Uh, which I thought was very funny, because Racco Welsh was such a revealing sort of person. And uh, she said, can you possibly make them a little bit longer? So yeah, okay, okay, give me some time. So I went up. Stairs into the workroom, and I made a false hem. I made a sort of facing on the bottom, which took a little while. And so it didn't look bad, it looked good, and took them back downstairs. And um, there was this huge bodyguard, and he just said, right, I'll take those. And then she <clears throat> suddenly jumped up from behind the clothing rail where she'd been hiding, because, you know, she couldn't really go in any shop without being mobbed. <laughs> she was so famous and so beautiful. So she was shyly hiding behind all these clothes and emerged and uh, was very pleased with them and said, oh, thank you so much. And uh, and then off they went.
0: Now, Paul Gorman told me, um, Dinah, that you've got yeah. a story about um, meeting Dennis Hopper as well.
1: Yes. Now, well, that was the Royal College of Art do. There was a big ball called the white ball and um, everything was white everybody was dressed in white and my boyfriend from Bradford College of Art Clive McLean who became the nude photographer later on in his life he and I went to this white ball and Clive had been at art college with Hockney so he knew him, you see. So he said, oh, there's David over there. We're we'll going to have a word with him. Come on. So we went across and standing in the middle of this ballroom, there we were talking to Hockney. And Hockney had Dennis Hopper with him. And Dennis Hopper was just standing there like a, a spare balloon. And um, so he started talking to me as Clive was deep in conversation with Hockney. And Dennis Hopper said, you know, where'd you come from? And I told him, I said, well, it's a little place called Ilkley. It's in the middle of a valley. And he said, oh, what's it like? And I said, oh, it's beautiful. It's, you know, a countryside. And the, and sometimes I go up into the woods by the moors when I get home from London. And uh, and just can't wait to get up there and get up by the streams and the and the trees and everything. And I just lie down. Uh, with my nose into the ground, and breathe in, and go, ah, wonderful smell of the grass and the moss and everything. And I said, then I I feel okay. (laughs) And he was standing there looking at me uh, with tears coming out of his eyes. And he just put his arms around me and buried his head inside of my neck. And he started to sob. And he said, you don't know how long it is since I heard anybody talk like that. Thank you. It was like, you know, everybody was very false and everybody in the show business and all that. And he'd suddenly heard somebody talking about something which was grassroots, which was genuine and uh, wasn't, nobody was trying to pose or anything. I was just talking to him about burying my nose in the moss.
0: You've got to love it. That's what got to Dennis Hopper. Sweetie, obviously a Sweetie himself underneath. Um, uh, but, Dana, let's talk a bit, a little bit about your designs at Mr. Freedom because, I mean, you know, you mentioned it, very, very influential um, boutique, you know, Freddie Mercury was getting dressed there and all those sort of people. Um, and the, the designs that you were doing there, I mean, they were really quite avant-garde in a way, weren't they? And sort of very experimental with you know, use of fabrics and combining things. And I know Paul Paul was saying as well, um, you know, how well-made they were as well.
1: Yes. They were well-made because they were made out in a factory in South London by a Turkish guy and his sister who worked day and night making these wonderful clothes and uh, nothing was skipped or uh, they made them properly. And so... We'd go out to the factory and take the new pattern that I'd done or whatever, and then see it through from the beginning. Start, do the sample, get the girl to do the sample, and get the shapes, like the baseball suit. You know the baseball suit I did with the lace up, the lace up the front? There were uh, boxing boots laces, actually, that I got in, uh, in a, a boxing uh, supplies shop in Hammersmith and dyed them yellow, and... Um, so they were, I made them, it looked like a shoe. The top looked like a baseball boot, really, laced up at the front. And then it had the side patches, which you normally have on the ankle of the boot. These side patches, which were just at the side of, either side of the bust. And it had a tongue as well, coming out the top. And then I did the the trousers, looking a bit like the sort of uh, basketball Trousers with with uh, shapes over the knees, so it took a long time to get it right that style, to get the absolute the right proportions and everything. But you'd be out in this factory with the freezing cold wind howling through the the uh, goods the goods yard uh, door and trucks backing in with different supplies. And you'd go, No, no, I need that's gotta be that's gotta be three eighths of an inch longer, or this has got to be like this. So we'd work on it. We had we were wearing fur gloves and boots and scarves in this howling wind and that was the Mr. Freedom <laughs> that's the Mr. Freedom factory.
0: <laughs> well, I mean the shop was described as having an unquenchable enthusiasm for all things bright and in outrageously bad taste and of course I don't know whether you're involved in it, but I mean those early uh, 70s Elton John outfits, you know, quite outrageous uh, glammy yeah. outfits um, and uh, they, they, that all came from Mr. Freedom or the designers there, right?
1: Yes. Um, Jim O'Connor did a few things for him um, and he he really um, you know, certain things which were more of Jim O'Connor's uh, handwriting really than mine, but um, Everybody, Snow, Chris Snow was there. Who was doing appliqué? He was the expert at appliqué. You know what appliqué is, don't you?
0: Well, it's, explain it for us, yeah.
1: You you put um, you make a design of say uh, a little a little horse coming over the top of a hill or something, and then you make that out of satin, different shapes out of satin, and you stitch it down. And that then gets padded as well with a sort of K-pop padding. Um, And that would go on the back of a jacket. Um, And I did a a dress called, I called it a sizzler coat. It's a big Mongolian fur collared, high collared coat, a film star coat, really, Mm. you know. Like you would go to, you'd look glamorous in that coat. It was high-collared, white Mongolian lamb, fake Mongolian lamb. um, And then came cinched in at the waist and then flared right out um, in the skirt part. And that was in pale blue satin. And the back, I designed the applique that went right up the back. So very childlike applique in Mr. Freedom, really, when you think about it. I did... uh, a, r- a little winding road, and it was a bit like somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> it was a, 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 little, a little person skipping up this winding road through different bushes and mountains mm-hmm. and whistling. And that was all in a satin applique, up the back of this rather glamorous coat that somebody would be wearing who wasn't at all. Uh, into little boys
0: skipping up the back of the road. (laughs) um, Mr. Freedom sort of moves on. It became a bit more successful, I suppose, and a bit more corporate. It became a
1: bit big, and they they moved um, clocking in machines into the shop. It it lost the the, the the ethos of freedom, really. Not that anybody wanted to pinch anything, but they put security guards on their doors. It became too successful, and... uh, I'm putting the clocking in machines and there was a, a lack of individuality and they were sacking certain people who worked in the shop because they were, they were such characters that they didn't always go by the rules. And uh, there was one boy called Harold who was a Ted. He was a Teddy boy. He, he called himself Harold. And he, was, he had a cigarette sticking out the side of his mouth and he wore all the Mr. Freedom stuff and he was a member of staff at Mr. Freedom. So you had these wonderful characters. But when uh, Lord Kitchener came in and uh, went into partnership with Mr. Freedom, you know, he didn't want people larking about and, and skiving off or hanging about with a cigarette hanging out their mouths or whatever. And he put, a, he put clocking in machines in and uh, got rid of a few people and said, this has got to be like this and this has got to be a row of like this and you've got to tidy this up and get this out. And we just actually, it's not the same as it was. And so Trevor Miles, who was the sort of guiding light of Mr. Freedom and Chris Snow, who did the applique, and I left. And uh, Trevor said, we're we're going, um, go home and wait for us to call you. Uh, We've got something lined up that you'll just love. And... uh, so just don't worry. So I'm without a job, and I go home and wait. And they ring me up and say, We're coming to get you. And I hear this... Coming along the road. And there's this enormous American car coming along the road (laughs) with Trevor and Chris sitting in the front. Uh, And... Mustang. is it Mustang?
0: Ford Mustang, yeah
1: and said, come on, as I dashed down the stairs, and uh, me and my dog jumped in the back, and we all roared off, and I said, where are we going? Wait and see, wait and see. We go roaring along the King's Road, and we get to where the old Mr. Freedom was, the old shop which had all its shutters up and everything, and uh, goes, takes the key out, opens the door, and said, this is where we're going to be. This is our new shop, and we're going to call it Paradise Garage.
0: That location, as you mentioned earlier, um, has sort of stayed, um, in the boutique area isn't it? You know, McLaren and Westwood took it took it over with Let It Rock, and um, and just I think Westwood's still there now, right? So that actual that little patch of, of Chelsea is kind of uh, the continuous, continuous theme of uh, swinging London and cool uh, alternative clothing.
1: It's got some sort of energy about it. That corner, Mm. I don't know, really, but it has.
0: So, Mr. Freedom had gone off like I mean, some of the other boutiques had. They got bigger, more commercial. Also, they started doing lots of pop art furniture and lifestyle things as well. But you guys had sort of stayed true to this kind of uh, countercultural, independent vibe, right? We
1: started selling Hawaiian shirts and uh, used jeans uh, that were all sort of. hatched and ragged and, and uh, cut off got you know trunk loads of used jeans brought in from the states because the states had these warehouses full of old jeans jeans that were worn at the knee or whatever got thrown away and so they, these these aircraft load loads of, of clothes came over and we were Putting patches on them, or cutting off, the, cutting off the bottoms, or and they they were selling. And the Hawaiian shirts, we had, uh, and we had bowling shirts as well. And we played Hawaiian music, and we got bamboo poles and strung rope across the side and down. So the clothing rails were made out of. Big thick bamboo poles. So it's like being on a South Sea island.
0: (laughs) Quite tiki, yeah.
1: And the floor was kind of rattan matting, and there was a big oil drum. We went and found these great big oil drums. That was the setting, and people started coming. All the old Mr. Freedom people who loved the old Mr. Freedom came and, you know, because Trevor was quite charismatic as well and he would talk to people in clubs and say, you've got to come and see our new shop, you'll love it. And so that came, you know, the Kirk Douglases and the Liz Taylors and the, <laughs> and the Raquel Welshes um, and the normal people as well, uh, to to Paradise Garage.
0: Um, Diana, can you just ask you, so we, at the same time as all this is going on, I mean, you know, you're living your life in London and that... Thing about you know being out in the clubs, on the streets, you know, doing your kind of visual research by people watching. You know, what are young people wearing? What they're coming up with themselves? You know, what 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 are the the latest or even the next things? Or getting your inspiration? That was always going on at the same time. Was I it?
1: think I was more hooked into the vibe of what what Trevor and and Chris Snow and and a few other people were thinking which was going with the vintage. The vintage clothing thing started hitting the King's Road. So there was the old 1940s, 1950s jackets, the teddy boy look thing, Uh, Lloyd Johnson. People were um, attracted to those sort of clothes and started wearing them. So you have these enormous... uh, Great big suede shoes, and you, know, you saw the people walking along the King's Road wearing stuff from the forties and fifties. Do you what, understand?
0: Yeah, I do, of course. But was that was that a kind of remade, reinterpreted, or repurposed stuff, or was no, it just we were just straight out of the, like you know dressing like you're in some nineteen forties gangster film?
1: It was just a direction. You couldn't afford a lot of new clothes anyway. And you went to Portobello on a Saturday morning and picked up things. Oh, I found this great fleck, this 1950s fleck jacket with uh, a velvet collar. These were old clothes that people had thrown away and were being sold on Portobello. So you're picking up vintage clothes and wearing them. And mixing vintage clothes as well. You'd be wearing a Victorian, a Victorian blouse, and a pair of skin-tight drainpipe
0: denim jeans. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that the, that the whole retro vintage thing started yeah. that far back? I was at Brick Lane at the weekend. You oh, know, yeah. w- walking at Brick Lane, and of course, you know, there's 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 a whole vintage market there. You know, there's there's yeah. a couple of Rocket and there's a couple of other big shops. Um, you know, selling. S- selling that stuff and of course now it's it's prime prices, you know, you're paying Oh yeah. You'd be paying, you know, hundreds for a, a piece like you just mentioned there, like a fifties jacket, you know, like that.
1: Yes. And it never quite goes away because there's great quality in those clothes. There's great quality of, of manufacturing and there's great uh, character in those clothes. And you're not gonna see anybody else wearing that that mm. jacket that you just got from the antique market, or from Portobello, mm. or whatever, because there aren't any more of them. Or a bowling shirt. Or we sold lots of bowling shirts. You'd get bowling shirts over, and they'd have like Sadie applique on the front, you know. And that that shirt had actually belonged to somebody called Sadie, mm. who was a you know a bowler. Um, and <laughs> you'd find all sorts of things which uh, you'd wear in a sort of humorous way, but it, they'd be very sexy as well. So you mix the clothes together.
0: And that ties in with what you do next because then you started getting invited or asked to make clothes, especially for TV commercials and for all that sort of stuff. And the next phase for you um, really was that you started to travel a lot more, didn't you? You started to get out, out about in the world again, right?
1: I worked for various other companies as well. And I worked with Trevor as well in other companies and so he'd say we're we're going to hong kong to get manufacturing out there and i worked for plaza where anthony price was the mainstay at plaza but they opened up a little sideline and called it secret ingredient and that was more body wear footless tights and skin tight body revealing clothes Anthony price to me, is the most clever designer that I've ever seen, ever met. He's a perfectionist. You know, he, does, he did all Brian, Ferry, Brian Ferry's suits. I'd see him working into the night, perfecting a shape. He would build a shape on top of a dummy, of a tailor's dummy, uh, which was the shape of the person he was going to be dressing. So he had quite a few shells which were in a big cupboard. One film star's uh, body, or this is so so's body. And So he'd just be able to strap that onto the dummy, and that this film star would say, "Can you? I need, I need a couple more dresses, but in a different cloth or in a different colour. Can you do it?" And he would work on those dresses, not needing for that star to come over from America.
0: Again, another northerner, right? Another person from Yorkshire. And, yes. Um, He's dressed all. He dressed all sorts of people. didn't he? David Bowie, Rob Palmer, Steve Strange, Duran Duran, yeah. Brian Ferry, Roxy Music, you, you know, yeah. it's, and all sorts of people. But for you, I mean, you started to travel. You started to work on commercials and stuff. You, you, you're saying that you went to Hong Kong, Casablanca. This is the time. I think this is the time. Actually, when you started to morph into what really became your new career, isn't it?
1: I've always been interested in in, in people and. Somehow, how their shape and how their hands show their character. You can get somebody who's got really really clumsy hands or a clumsy face, if you like, if if there's such a thing. And they can't help what they are. They've just been built like that. And their mentality is clumsy or or the mentality is greedy or impatient. If they have very, very short, tiny fingers that are stubby... um, They can't help being impatient and angry or short-tempered. That is the way their brain is is constructed. Markets that I used to go to all those years. I'd pick up old Victorian books on palm reading because they were heavily into that. So there'd be these diagrams of different palms, but not just palms, fingers and fingerprints. The actual circles on the ends of the finger show you an awful lot about the... Brain work of a person, so to me, it was a fascinating thing, which I never stopped uh, investigating. And so I started to do sometimes just look at somebody's hand in a pub, and uh, I said, "God, I said, no wonder you're a bad-tempered old git. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel sorry for you because you can't help it." And they go, "Yeah, I know, I just don't seem to be able to control my temper." And then you'd see also that they were really heavily into sweets and chocolates and, and salt and stuff that uh, made their mood different.
0: Mm. And
1: so you'd say, look, why do you just drop that, very, drop very, very salty foods or cut down on the alcohol or whatever. You've got this kind of basis in your, in your makeup that you've inherited from your dad or your mother of being rather a short-tempered person, but maybe you could, um, stop that from continuing by realizing that you are this sort of machine that has this kind of mentality. And maybe you could start to help yourself in some way. And they go, Oh, can I come and see you again? You know, what do you think about my, my, my sister, she wants to come and see you. And, um, so I said, "Oh no, don't bring everybody in." You know, I'm not going to start standing here reading people's hands. Um, I started reading hands in an art gallery in the King's Road. Somebody said, "Oh, come," because we've got plenty of people that come in the art gallery. They'd love to have their hands read. So I started in that King's Road in an art gallery. When I think about it, and then. Um, Richard Branson really gave me a big helping hand, gave me a, an opportunity.
0: I mean, we think about Richard Branson as daredevil, super, super successful um, entrepreneur and businessman, but of course he, he was big part of the kind of countercultural stuff.
1: I knew, knew him by sight, really, years and years before that, when he had a little shop, and he had um, rather bad teeth, and uh, <laughs> not terribly attractive, and he was just quite shy and kind of, hi, hi, yeah, hi, and uh, a bit spotty. And I admire him because he just persevered and persevered and built up his, his business.
0: He invites you to come and uh, read the palms of various people. Did you actually read his hand at any point? No. He didn't want to reveal himself then?
1: No, it was enough that he'd given me the facility of his his main office in Holland Park. <laughs> to read all his staff's hands because he was interested in it. I didn't report back to him saying this person is rather <laughs> highly nervous
0: or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you want to watch um, that guy. He's uh, he's, on the yeah. f- he's on the fiddle.
1: Yeah. You know, you have to be very careful. I met him coming out of the lavatory. Um, that was the first day I went... You don't want to look
0: at a guy's hand when he's just come out of the lavatory. Definitely no.
1: <laughs> and I was just in my raincoat and I'd just been in this pouring rain and um, I was just going to go to Lou and it, the door was closed and so I was just going to sort of step back and then he came out doing his trousers up and he said hi I'm Richard and shook hands with me <laughs> so I said hello I'm Diana I've come to um he goes, yes I know and so off he went and I sat down on the loo, thinking, I've just sh- shaken Richard Branson's
0: hand. Can you not do sort of like super quick readings? <laughs> you might have been able to foretell that he was about to become one of the kind of most successful business people in
1: Britain. Well, I think you. he already was, you see. Right. I mean, there was no way I mm. could have uh, embellished what he already had achieved.
0: You know, you, you basically sort of seamlessly uh, blended or crossfaded these two careers of... You know, fashion designer and um, making clothes, and this more esoteric thing of palm reading, and of course, I mean, both those things are sort of—it's what I associate with swinging London and the counterculture, because there was, of course, you know, uh, all the fashion stuff say on the Kings Road, uh, and particularly there, but I also associate Chelsea with that more esoteric thing as well.
1: That's what the sixties was about. It was mm. getting in touch with your real self, and uh, to me, uh, how the brain works. Is is the is the beginning? Mm. Is the to know how somebody's brain works by looking at their hand? Um, you can give them an awful lot of help, and you can almost see that they're they're writing their own story. They're writing their own lives.
0: You carried on with both things, but actually, then you told me that one day, twenty years ago, you're back on the King's Road, walking down, and you walked into Wild Ones, which is a sort of esoteric it, shop, and um, yeah, you started to become their in-house palmist there right
1: Yes, I was a bit skint. And uh, the banker said, we can't uh, give you any more overdraft. And uh, so I walked across the road to this little wild one's shop and uh, walked in and said, do you ever need a palm reader? I left them my flyer, which said, you know, had, had worked at Richard Branson's Reading Handset. And he said, uh, can, you, can you do mornings? So my my own publicity had worked well for me, and so I went back and started working more some mornings for them, and then I started getting a, a more and more customers. Can you do an afternoon? Can you do this? So then I just stayed really.
0: And you've been there ever since. We're actually running out of time. and I just wanted to mention the fact that we were planning at one point to for Diana to. Uh, do a live reading as it were of me of my palm Um, but we decided it was plenty to fit into an hour uh, already and uh, but she did do mini reading which she she sent me um, uh, earlier and um, quite startling stuff so we are going to follow up on that maybe we'll record it and put it out if it's interesting enough but Diana we've come to the end and um, I wanted to thank you uh, so much for coming to uh, the Bureau of Lost Culture to tell us some of your wonderful life and times in Swinging London and the counterculture. It, wonderful stories and wonderful times.
1: Well, thank you, and you've been a wonderful listener and a wonderful encourager, and I've already drawn your hand into my note. Not a bad hand at all. It's Thanks. a good hand.
0: Thank you. But for it... saying that, I just wanted you to relieve my anxiety that' something something there's something terrifying going on in my life that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> thank you so much. You are a wonderful person to interview and to talk to at the Bureau of Lost Culture.
1: Well, I'm carrying on living, helping people, and creating things.
0: And, listener, she is still at it. After our conversation, Diana sent me a couple of poems, one from a long time back and one recently written I worry a lot about where life is leading and what will I do if it all gets much worse. But I'm eating a peach at four in the morning and listening to Strauss and looking at Bruce Springsteen who's looking right back at me. And life's still surprising and still being written. So what's wrong with listening to Viennese waltzes and eating a peach at four in the morning? Since our conversation I know that Diana is back at Wild Ones On the King's Road um, Hopefully that'll stay open during these uncertain times So if you're in London And you get a chance You could pop in and uh, say hello to yourself And even get your palm read Thank you for listening Also thanks to Paul Gorman Because actually he... Uh, turned me on to Diana and her wonderful work and uh, also pointed out something which we didn't talk about which is that Machino, the fashion label run by designer Jeremy Scott recently, how can I put this borrowed very heavily from Diana's designs at Mr Freedom and didn't acknowledge her that seems a great shame I'm sure though she's so positive she probably doesn't care really Anyway, thanks to Paul uh, for all that. You can also read his uh, blogs on the shop where Mr. Freedom was and the way that that has morphed over the years. After Mr. Freedom and Paradise Garage, as we heard, there was Let It Rock, then McLaren and Westwood, and then Sex, then Seditionaries, and on and on and on. It's still there, of course. So, do come back. Join us on some other occasion to hear more tales from the underground. I'm Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture. See you next time.